And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic With not just that one big, big, big rider move, but so many question marks over manufacturers' win to work and how it would have gone, the opening MotoGP pre-season test of 2024 was very, very eagerly awaited. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm Matt Beer. We're racing through this before Simon Patterson jumps on a plane. He's coming to us from Kuala Lumpur Airport, having raced from rider debriefs uh, to the airport to try and get a podcast in when all his thoughts are freshest in his head before he collapses at the end of a long few days of shakedown and testing. Val Harinci hasn't been at the test, but looks equally exhausted from it. We've got plenty to get through in the next hour as we bring you everything we know about what happened in those three days of full field running at Sepang and the shakedown before that, and quite a few things going on off track as well. So I'm going to throw in a question to start with that we're going to leave the answer to hanging for now, but come back to a little bit later. I just want a very simple answer for now with no justification. So Val, we'll do you first. Who impressed you most during this test? I mean, I know what Simon's answer is, and Simon's answer is the correct answer, yeah. but to be, <laughs> to be different, Alicia Spargo, a brilliant. And Simon, who impressed you most at this test? Pedro Acosta, Pedro Acosta, and Pedro Acosta. <laughs> He's the real deal. <laughs> We're going to get into both of those topics uh, in, in depth later, especially the, especially the Acosta one. And it's tackling the question of how much of it was him being incredible and how much of it was he's had double the testing of most other people. I, I think I know what your answer is going to be from both of you on that. But I think a lot of people are here straight away to hear how Mar- Marquez got on during his first three proper days as a Ducati rider. You know, he had, had the Valencia test last winter, but that was strange conditions straight on just the one bike that was available. This was the proper start of real Marquez at Ducati work. So who wants to go first in giving you a summary of uh, how Marquez's week went and what you make of it? Go for it, Val. Yeah, so... Uh, I mean, ultimately, I think we now know that Mark Marquez probably isn't going to win every race of the season, like like some feared. <laughs> Certainly not win every race by 20, 25 seconds, because it wasn't an easy test and it wasn't a particularly front-running test. But at the same time, I would I would struggle to ca- categorize it as bad or particularly worrying for a few extenuating circumstances, but just one very important philosophical point. The extenuating circumstances are, well, mostly that his first day just went to crap the bike just kept not working and messing up on him and he never got into a particular rhythm he you know missed out on a lot of quality track time so he's had to sort of compress the rest of his the rest of his program he did like 70 laps on the second day to make up for it clearly it's not it's not quite ideal in terms of the preparation and in terms of learning a new bike and you know there is i think a continued trend where one lap will take a bit longer, so see, figuring out qualifying on, on this bike will take him a little bit longer, but in races he'll be absolutely fine. So it'll be just a question to begin with of using his trademark early aggression to to make things happen. And another very important thing is he's still not riding the Ducati like he wants to. He's you know he's apparently getting into the corner quite well, 
but it's, you know, making use of all of that planted grip on exit that is missing. The philosophical part of it is we've seen a lot of Mark Marcus Honda preseasons and some of them, you know, it was just a question of questionable Honda developments and stuff working or not working, but also he just doesn't gun it in testing normally. Mark doesn't really top testing. He can be, you can see him 14th or 15th at the end of a test and still not really be shaken up about his prospects for the season. Well, what you just said there reminded me, actually, how long has it been since we saw a good, ordinary Mark Marquez preseason? Because obviously 2020 was the first like, oh, my gosh, Honda's really getting this wrong panic. And then we know how that season went. But before that, didn't we have a run where almost every winter he had a shoulder reconstructed? He'd on one occasion broken a leg preseason from training. He's, He's generally not had great winters. And for most of the 2010s, that never mattered. He got there, lost to a Ducati in Qatar and then won everything from like spring onwards. And then it really, really did matter for the last few years. But yeah, he's not a man you can generally judge in testing because actually he's often had completely rubbish winters. I mean, his his 2013 preseason was a rookie. His 2014 preseason had a broken leg in the middle of it. His 2017 preseason had a shoulder reconstruction. So did his 18 preseason. And his 19 preseason, they messed up the arrow until the final day of the... Uh, the final day of testing, whenever he finally got it right and, and won everything. So basically, the only decent preseason test he's ever had was 2015, the year that he actually lost the championship. <laughs> um, so you know, there is, like, for me, I've seen nothing over the past few days that that changes my view that he's a title contender this year because. Day one was absolutely plagued by mechanical problems, technical issues, which is sometimes just a nature of racing and probably more so whenever you're inheriting a year old bike that's already done a season and has things to break um so day one was a write-off therefore he's been chasing the curve ever since and i think considering he's been behind the rest of them because of that and he's still running at lap record pace and you know right in the mix yeah, I, I don't think this was a bad test. I think it was a, a bad result if you only look at the timesheets. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, he learned lots. He had loads of track time once they get the problem sorted in day one. And yeah, I mean, I just I don't think this was a bad test. We're, we've been listening to him managing expectations for months and months and months about it because he hates Sepang. Um we know that he isn't a huge fan of Qatar either, but is he going to go to the Circuit of the Americas at the third round of the championship and win it by like nine seconds? Yes, 100% he is, based on what we've seen today. And and from that win, then he'll build a, t- a title contender status. But yeah, I haven't changed my view at all. He was what? He was six tenths off over over the, the single lap compared to new record holder and old record holder and pole record holder, Paco Bagnaia. Six tenths is a lot on the same brand of bike, but honestly, from Mark's MotoGP history, we've absolutely seen weekends where he just, you know, he ships six tenths in qualifying and then suddenly in the race, he's just right there again anyway, on tracks that he doesn't like, I think, in particular. So it's, it, it, it is not concerning. It is, it is not worrying, but... It, there, there, there certainly are tracks where he won't be the quickest Ducati, so at least that is important to to confirm, I guess. Simon, you mentioned. Oh, my, sorry, it might have been Val. Actually, you you merge into one for me quite often. Um, 
argumentative people with slightly different accents. Um, you mentioned <laughs> one of you mentioned that Marquez may have to rely on his trademark aggression if he's not quite got the absolute raw pace on the Ducati. It was Val, thank you, Val Ducati at first. Now, historically in recent years, Mar- Marquez having to rely on his trademark aggression to make up for something has not gone well at all. But I guess this time he's got the he's got more time on his side. Like in the last few years at Honda, he knew that the package wasn't right. It, it was do or die maneuver or nothing or trail around in 17th as he was sometimes when he was trying to make a point about what happened if he didn't take risks this is different he knows this bike should work he knows he's got a bit of time to to make it work in theory how is he how is he coming across in person simon is this like um quietly confident happy marquez was there any sign was he, he i know he doesn't always give a lot away but certainly the grassini launch i felt that there was a, an innate beaming smile coming through his eyes Day one, he was like visibly frustrated and a bit, I don't want to say rattled, but he, he was uncomfortable. Um, all those mechanical issues and everything, all the track time, he sounded and looked like someone that was a bit frustrated. Um, then the rest of the weekend, he very quickly turned that around and was just pretty cool and pretty chill about it. Um, kind of standard issue, Marquez, good day, if that makes sense. Because like you say, he doesn't give a lot away, Matt. He... he tends to hold his his cards quite close to his chest unless he's standing on the top step of a podium screaming at everyone. Um, and, and I think, again, that there's nothing about the mood in the body language apart from you know that opening day that, that makes me think that he's, um, he's in any way too upset by the whole affair. Let's uh, move on from the Marquez Ducati to the rest of Ducatis. Uh, unsurprisingly, Ducati looked very, very fast this week. There's plenty of talk before the test, plenty of hints about the aero it might be bringing. Um, was the aero as startling as was hinted? And I, I'm I'm excited by who seems to like and who doesn't like this aero as well, because there's quite a clear split among Ducati's leading riders about it. So the, the aero was in no way as startling as we thought it was going to be. Uh, they hyped up this like revolutionary new looking bike and it was just kind of, they kind of stole a few bits of pieces from other people. Um, if anyone was doing like really visually different looking stuff with, with Aero at this test, it was probably Aprilia, but it, it certainly wasn't Ducati. Um, it looks like what they've tried to do is keep the, the old sort of ducting that they had on the side of the bike, but they've worked it so that it acts a little bit like Aprilia's uh, downforce effect uh, fairing. So it, it's got a much more pronounced shelf on top of the ducts now. So the, the concept is, is fairly familiar. It's something that we've seen other people do. But as you'd expect from Ducati Aero, this is probably the most refined version of the concept. Um, it looks like they've, you know, we, we've talked in the podcast in the past about waiting for others, about how Ducati formed behind the others a little bit after being the ones that innovated Nero. But it, it now kind of looks like what they've done is let everyone else jump ahead a bit, looked at what everyone else is doing, and then cherry pick the best of it and refine it into something really, really good. And you know, that's evidenced by the lap times. They were considerably faster than everyone else with the new bike. Um, the initial feedback on it was that it, it it was liked very much by Enea Bastianini and by Paco Bagnaia and not liked very much by Jorge Martin because... What, what everyone's trying to do with Aero now is make the bike more stable and more planted to the ground on corner entry, on braking. And those two guys, Bastianini and Bagnaia, are big, heavy breakers. So they wanted to make the bike even more stable whenever they were slowing down so they could use their riding style. Martin carries more corner speed. He wasn't as happy because it makes the bike heavier through the corners. On the final day of the test, that changed a little bit. 
and it seems like Martinez found something that's more comfortable with it that he's he's a, you know figured it out a bit which is which is a good change because at the end of the second day he was talking about how well maybe we're going to have to race the 2023 arrow this year because this new one just isn't working for me um Ducati will want all of them in the same package because it's got big development gains if everyone's you know, feeding data from the same bike into the same pot. They've been in a position where that's not the case before and they weren't happy about it. So it makes sense that they want it. And yeah, it it looks, I mean, it looks like the fairing doesn't look as visually different as we expected, but it is absolutely working. And it might actually be the first time in a long time where we've went into a, a MotoGP season and you in theory, say that the 2024 Ducatis are looking, you know, the current Ducatis, I should say, are looking better than the old bikes are. Because normally the, the, the year old bike starts this test super, super fast. And they don't have that advantage this year. Yeah, it's, I'd say it's very close between the two. And honestly, I would, in, in terms of the Arab specifically, you know, Martin did set ultimately his fastest time of the, of the test, the second best time. Uh, on the new arrow so clearly it's no longer like a deal breaker can't use it can't go into the season with it i still wouldn't be surprised if with the more familiar arrow setup he'd maybe match peko banya's lap record or something like that because you'd normally expect it sounds ridiculous but there's like what a tenth and a half between them and that's kind of a lot given how how good jorge martin is over a single lap but i think he's fine and i think in any Ducati configuration. Like, there's just no problem. He's going to be fast this season. There's no question about it. But the direction is interesting. And I think it, what is most interesting, and I think we'll get into it in just about now, is its impact not on, Bar- not on Bagnaia, not on Martin, but the, the other Ducati rider, the, the, the beast in the room, if, if you will. Well, I, I'm going to park the beast for a second because I want to get into Ooh. the Martin thing a little bit more. I, okay. Because you say... You say Martin can handle any configuration, and yeah, based on last year, you're right. But the year before that, Martin has to stick with the new Ducati engine at Pramac when everyone, when the works riders go back to the old one mm. and prefer it. Martin has a really messy 2022 season that makes a few of us, me most vocally on this podcast at the time, think this guy wasn't always cracked up to be his crashing out the lead of every race. You know, it wasn't a comfortable year for him. He's now okay. He's got the massive confidence boost of everything he achieved last season. He's also still Jorge Martin, someone whose emotions come through on the track a little bit. He's also fighting to demand a Ducati factory seat for next year or head off somewhere else. This question of what spec he's got and the fact that the new spec might not suit him, and it sounded earlier in the week certainly like he might be keen to go into 2024 with the 2023 Aero still. Uh, this, this to me seems like. The possibility of Martin either being forced to do something he doesn't want to at a time when he's got a few doubts about his Ducati future anyway, or just going renegade and sticking with a package that Ducati prefer he probably didn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's a thought that I think has definitely occurred. I would say that as much as this new aero seems to work particularly for Bagnai and Bastianini, I don't think it's a, like a Bagnai or Bastianini request. I don't think anybody makes requests for Gigi Delinia and then Gigi Delinia works to tailor stuff to specific riders i think he just does the fastest version and that's this is what he sees as the fastest version and this version did a remarkable sifang lap time in in peko Banya's hands so and it, it it has done also a remarkable lap time in martin's hands i think yes you're right about the 2022 engine situation but we have to remember that first of all martin has gained a lot of experience since and he did get fast on it and it wasn't the same engine being used by, you know, Peko Bagnaia and 
his factory teammate then Jack Miller, it was a different spec that everybody had a lot of issues with. And Martin did figure something out with it, even though he didn't like it towards the end of the season. Uh, it, I know what you mean in terms of the results conversion, and that's that's important, obviously. That's the name of the game. What, what, the only thing I was trying to say is he'll be fast. The lap yeah. times will, like, the eyeballs will pop out. <laughs> it's happening. It's it's just a question of how many points that translates into. But the, the only thing I want to say is he will be fast enough to win this title. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, I think it just has a, an impact on how many ripples we have along the way and you know you know i, I quite often this podcast i mean how much i like ripples because they're good for website traffic podcast listenership all of that sort of thing so i just yeah just shamelessly wanting the drama really you are now allowed to talk about any abastinini but partly because he, he will also be a source of drama if he is right back on banyaya's pace then are we about to get what we should have had last year in terms of someone very quick landing on peko banyaya's turf in the factory team i w- before we go into this i want to make an important caveat i think this is very important Everybody who looks at Enea Bastianini's past record on any Ducati bike on Sepang will see that he just, he gets Sepang. He's just very good there. So this has to be confirmed at other tracks. Before we go into calling him a, a definite surefire title contender for this season, we have to see it at other tracks. And maybe not even Qatar, because he's also good at Qatar, kind of. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I still have that question mark looming over. That said, he's been happy all test. He's been at the sharp end all test. Both he and Ducati are saying the bike suits him much better, that he's much happier, that he's ready to go into the title fight. Uh, and it's it's already much smoother preseason than he had last year. So it's clearly not nothing. I think the signs are really good. It's just, again, it's that Sipang caveat that bothers me a little bit. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Let's move on from the team that's been very, very good for the last few years to the teams that have been conspicuously not very good lately, but now have concessions, now have some new ideas and have a very, very big season ahead of them. Yamaha and Honda. We'll start with Yamaha because, you know, we've been hyping Yamaha on the site and on the podcast as the one that feels like it's on the cusp of getting back to respectability. It had less work to do than Honda. It seemed like it had a better idea of what its core problems were. It's got an amazingly good rider lineup in Fabio Cotteraro and Alex Rins. How was Yamaha's test, Simon? So I'm, I'm very quickly going to talk about Yamaha's test because the most important and interesting thing about Yamaha at the test didn't happen on track. It had nothing to do with the bike. So let's, let's cover off the bike first and say that they've, they've brought a new bike. It has all of the things it seems that Fabio Quattararo wanted and asked for. And it has made, it has made 
not made him happier, um, but it has made him more hopeful. There's a lot of work still to be done with the bike, but they are leveraging heavily on the fact that because they've got concessions, because they can do all that work for the next few races and, and end, end of the year, that this is finally the base that they wanted to be able to go fast again. Um, he talked a lot at length at the end of the first day about how the thing that they needed for the next test wasn't new parts, it was new ideas. And what he means is that it, it's the engine is working, but they still need to figure out how to make the electronics control the engine properly. So they need to go away now, think about electronic strategies, think about software development, think about things to bring to Qatar that are all lines of code in a microchip, not you know, not not brand new swinging arms and a hugely redesigned engine, because the the guts of what they needed finally sounds like they've got, um, and yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how they react in time for Qatar, and then it's going to be really interesting to see how they react over the initial few rounds of the season as they leverage all that extra track time um, that they get with concessions and the ability to actually bring new things and new parts through the year, but. Like I said at the beginning, the most important thing from this test regarding Yamaha was all off-track stuff because they finally, I think, done enough work to convince Quattararo that he should stay, that his future is with Yamaha because they've basically done something that no Japanese factory has ever done before in my time in MotoGP and they've hired a load of Europeans and appointed them to be on the same level as Japanese engineering staff which doesn't happen you know they will allow Japanese factories and MotoGP will allow Europeans to run their race team but they do not let them build their bikes and with the addition of a former Ducati vehicle performance engineer uh, Max Bartolini he will now be joint command of the entire M1 project alongside uh, Matsuda-san the, the Japanese engineer that previously headed it um, their head of aerodynamics is now another Ducati at signing from Italy. Um, former F1 Toyota and Ferrari engine development boss um, Luca Marmarini's consultancy company is playing a huge role in developing their engines. This is a big change. This is a really, really big change. Um, my Japanese journalist colleague Akira Nishimura did an interview with uh, with their their big. Japanese project boss um, at the test and and essentially what he told him was that they're, they're not trying to build a Japanese team they're not trying to build a European team they're trying to now merge the best of both worlds into a successful package that works now, the last team in MotoGP that managed to do something like that was Suzuki and they won a championship whenever no one expected they had the capability of winning a championship so there is, there's logic to that strategy um, if Yamaha can pull it off successfully it bodes really really well for the future the signs that we've seen already hints that they're on that path and talking to Quattararo about it in particular Renz is different because he doesn't know I'm not not going to say he doesn't know any better but he's new to Yamaha but Quattararo sounds like someone now that that kind of knows that what comes next is up to him because Yamaha have actually done everything that he quite vocally and loudly and sometimes petulantly demanded of them during most of last season so, it, it, yeah, I think Yamaha aren't there yet, but they've got a lot to be hopeful about from how this test went. Um, if, if I was to pick out the manufacturer that least impressed me in this test is Yamaha by a fairly significant margin. And from what I saw on track, I am 
now less convinced that Fabio Cartaro is staying than I was before the test. <laughs> uh, this is not to undercut Simon, not to say that he, he's wrong in his interpretation, especially having spoken to Fabio Cartaro face-to-face. And clearly, Yamaha has put, put in some very impressive building blocks that he also acknowledges. They have an amazing rider lineup. They are going about things the right way. But the M1 is just still bad over one lap. Just bad. It's really bad. It is not bueno. It, it did... What Fabio Cartaro did four laps in like the same rage, said he again arrived at the limit of the bike. Is he if he's nine tenth off qualifying in the season, then nothing they've done matters. Then they might as well just keep testing the whole season, and just forget about any sort of results in twenty. Uh, I'm I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here and facetious. I, they will be closer, and the, the, you know the top speed is there, and the arrow work is being carried out, and they are stuttering from a very low ebb. But I. I listen to Fabio and I hear that impatience of that tiredness of firing in a really good lap and seeing it slot in P11 on the timing screens. And I I don't know how much longer term thinking can really satiate that because he's going to have a lot of weekends of this, I think, still this year. He's going to show up to the track. He's going to do his absolute best. He's going to fire in what feels like an amazing lap and then he's going to not make Q2. And at the same time, I think if there if there was an obvious alternative landing spot, then Yamaha would be cooked already. <laughs> that's my suspicion. Uh, there isn't right now, I think, and that's probably what is still creating the situation where he is still probably favored to stay at Yamaha. But I'm I'm not sold. I'm I'm really not sold. Not on the long term direction, but on on Quartararo being sold. If that makes any sense. That does. Yeah, I see where you're both coming from. And straight away, when you were both talking about it, it took me back to Yamaha launch on Monday when Simon was reporting back from that and saying that Lynn Jarvis was making comparisons to Lewis Hamilton's career decisions and moving from Mercedes to Ferrari in Formula One. And we were all going, Lynn, Lynn, he left. You're missing the point <laughs> that Hamilton actually left Mercedes. And you want this guy to stay. But what Jarvis was saying was that Hamilton's career moves have been all about looking at the next step ahead, looking at the team he was going to join, whether it's Mercedes in 2013 or Ferrari for 2025, and going, look what they've got lined up for this big rule change. Look at the people they brought on board. They may be meandering or you know, failing time and time again in Ferrari's case right now, but look at what's happening next. And if you look at what's happening next at Yamaha, there's a lot changing. There's a lot of pieces in place. And like you say, Val, that obvious alternative landing spot maybe isn't there. Aprilia looks like an immediate step up. But what's Aprilia doing next? Is Aprilia going to be in a position to fend off a resurgent Yamaha and Honda? Yeah. KTM allegedly wants no new riders, which we'll come back to another time because I think that is complete nonsense. So that's for that's for next week. But uh, Val's making a gesture at me. That, we'll, we'll, we'll get, I think we'll get to it in this episode. We, yeah, we might today. actually. Yeah, yeah, we will. Uh, yeah, thinking about the plan. Yes, we will. But yeah, I see what you mean. There's, there's not an obvious alternative landing spot. If, if Cotteraro's going, what's going to work for me not now, but in 2025, 26, then he's got to look at what Yamaha's offering. But he's also got to look back at the last few years and go, when has Yamaha actually delivered on the promise? But then he looks again and goes, but Yamaha hasn't put all these people in place till now. This is a different plan for Yamaha. Maybe I should see how this plan goes. I think either of you being confident in anything right now is just wrong. Because like you say, we need to see this bike on track and see how furious or not it makes him to see how much long-term faith he's going to have. Should we go on to Honda? Let's agree to all disagree on Yamaha and go on to <laughs> Honda. Simon, you can go first again on this because you've been looking the riders in the eyes. How is the new Honda and what do its what does its new rider lineup make of it? 
the Honda is, I think, contrary to the Yamaha, not as good as it looks on paper. Um, <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think that the Honda, the Honda, have, Honda have kind of they've impressed a lot in this test because it turns out that the bike is really, really good over one lap. But I think Juan Mir miraculously has become quite good over one lap and has been able to risk things to uh, to make one to set one lap time and that's why this bike is looking good because the real reality is that whenever it comes to the second half of a race on race pace it's still a bit garbage um luca marini has been kind of quietly optimistic all the way through and then did his first long run on the bike on the second day of the test and came to the debrief afterwards and was just the most sarcastic person. Just being like, well, this is awful about everything that they'd learned whenever, you know, it turns out that you do more than half the race distance or, um, yeah, half race distance and the, then the bike starts to chew up tires and suddenly you're going backwards at quite a rate of, yeah, it's not. It, it it looks really good because Mir did a few quick lap times, but I think they have substantially more work to do than Yamaha do. Um, I think they they still Yamaha sound like a team that have a path out of this problem, whereas Honda sound like a team that are still sort of struggling with some fundamental issues, and it's going to take a bit of time, not just to fix them, but to figure out really where they're coming from. See, I, 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 I would say I generally agree, but I am not as as evidenced by the previous segment. I'm not as down on Honda as 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 I am on Yamaha, in not in terms of like general competitiveness, but just in terms of the place they're in. Um, Honda, I think the bike is like it's genuinely better in ways that matter, and it's like it's genuinely clearly changed and it's genuinely new. Um, it's lighter, it's got a better engine. Riders all seem agree with that. Johan Zarco has come in from Ducati and seems to be absolutely beaming. So it, it seems to already work for him really genuinely quite well. Um, but yeah, it's it's the inverse of the Yamaha problem. They they will maybe have like a, a star qualifying or two, but much like through much of last season with, you know, Marcus's qualifying heroics, whether toe-enabled or not toe-enabled, then not sustaining themselves in races... I fear that's a, a very likely outcome. Although, if there was a rider who might buck the trend, it's Zarco, right? Like, just looking at Zarco, like, Zarco couldn't qualify the Ducati last season, but every race, second part of the race, he was always just basically the fastest guy on track. So, I'd like to see how much of that he can translate to the Honda and how much he can help them in that regard. It is like, I wouldn't say it's sunny, but because they don't have this lead rider who they must hang on to at every cost this you know sort of franchise rider that they need to live up to sooner than later because there is a bit more of a reasonable timeline to their rebuild i would argue i think it i think it looks okay i think it doesn't look too bad and i i did i was really impressed by joan mir's Mir's lap time, the 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 one off lap time he did and it could have been even better apparently but he, he crashed setting up the second run so we'll see, but yeah, I, I again, with, like with with Yamaha, it's like you can find positives if you want to. You can also find things to be worried about or not so impressed about or reserved about. And just Simon and I have approached those two manufacturers from different sides, I guess. But they are in a way inverse in performance. So yeah, 
Yeah, and I think you're right, Val, that they're inverse in performance and in terms of expectation as well. Like I was thinking, trying to think, what what has Repsol Honda got left to lose now? All that luster it being the MotoGP brand, that's gone. It's struggled for too many years. It's lost Mark Marquez. It's got a bunch of, it's got a world champion rider, but it's got a sort of solid rider lineup. No one expects it to win a race this year. The only way is up. If it takes two years to rebuild from here, fine, really. And yeah, some some encouraging. If if that can if that bike can get a couple of poles, if that bike can put Mir on MotoGP pole, that'd be ludicrous and, and amusing <laughs> given his career so far. But if it can just show some pace and if it fades in the race, whatever, let's just be nice to see Honda just going upwards, not dramatically downwards this year. That'll do for now. I don't think you can put Mir on pole. I don't think that's <laughs> happening. Not because like Jean Mir on pole is impossible or anything, just because like I don't think it's in a place to do that yet. And also because, again, its finest moments came with grip super high. Fair. And I think when we show up to some low grip places and its, it's grip deficiency gets tested again, there's going to be some annoyed faces across the lineup except for johan zarko i guess who's just he's he's so happy along for the ride congratulations johan <laughs> got the win getting a good paycheck getting getting some good work to do feeling like part of the team they're integrating lcr a lot more it seems which is yes. important and smart yeah just you know it's there are as all as with everything there are angles to which you can approach this from yeah on the lcr point this is another one for the let's get back to that next week between tests who goes where satellite team wise is could get very wild in the months to come. So Honda getting LCR really into the family and giving him a big cuddle is a great idea. Unless it turns out you're an LCR mechanic. Um, some of whom I've heard are not very happy about suddenly discovering that they're doing almost a factory-esque amount of uh, testing with concession status the next few months. <laughs> um, I think they didn't, LCR didn't quite <laughs> expect to be given factory status. And it's, yeah, there's a few people going to be away from home a bit more than expected. Yeesh. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Okay, so at the start of the episode, I got these two to pick their standout from the test, which was basically a way of going, let's not talk about Marquez in the very first second of the podcast. Let's just flag up some other people before we get into that simon very emphatically picked pedro acosta so simon the floor is yours you are more convinced than ever about acosta in MotoGP and, and the potential for what could happen here so talk through his week or his fortnight because he has been here a little bit longer yeah yeah so uh, he he turned up for the shakedown as a rookie because he's allowed to and i think a few people including very briefly val um 
kind of dismissed his lap times a little bit at the start of the test because he did three more days on track, which is fair. That's not unreasonable at all. However, this is his third ever visit to Sepang because his first year, his Moto3 year, we didn't come to Sepang because of COVID. So he's only raced at Sepang twice and then he turned up for this test and guess what he's like the fastest person in the world um he just looked so so quick he very nearly ended the test fastest ktm and whenever you're speaking to him afterwards he's talking like someone that has been on a moto gp bike for like years um it's wild you're you're listening to this kid and he still looks like a kid and acts like one a bit because he's young and dumb it's great um but then he's, you know, he's complaining about, oh, yeah, you know, I did my fastest lap and I was, what, point 0.1 or point 0.2 under the lap record. And, and he's saying, yeah, you know, but I messed up turn 5 and I messed up turn 12. We lost a couple of tenths there. I could have been faster. He nearly did a 56 today. That's the pace that we're talking about from this kid. He's just next level. He's so calm about it. He is so confident. Um, someone asked him today about the pressure of being a a rookie in MotoGP, you know, with all this hype around him. And he was basically like, have you not looked at the last three years of my life? I have been under pressure since my first race. <laughs> it does not bother me. And it's right. It's true. But he handles it so well. He, he, he never looks flustered. He never looks flummoxed. Clearly, the KTM has improved. Uh, the bike has found something. And we've not really talked much at all recently about Brad Bender and Jack Miller, who I think have been kind of slogging away on the, the hard work that comes in being a MotoGP team without actually you know, setting the world on fire, but they're doing good things. But he's just like it's just working so, so well for, uh, for Costa. I do not, do not at all dismiss the fact that he could be in the podium in Qatar. As Simon alluded to, I, I did apply sort of a shakedown ta- tax to the, the performances of Acosta in... In, in the first day, I mean, that honestly, by day two, I was no longer convinced of that. Now I, I, I barely even consider it. That probably help a little bit, but it's a ridiculous lap time. It's a ridiculous lap time. It's a ridiculous performance to the point where I'm, I'm getting Vietnam flashbacks already to that previous bit on a previous pod when I think Matt asked the question, how many races are Costa going to win this season or whatever? And I was very confident, like, none. Y'all are wrong. No chance. Win. <laughs> I'm really... I'm scared. I'm not. I'm not having a good time in that regard. He looks amazing. He looks incredible. Um, he is so fast, so quickly. There's you can't account for that with the extra days at Sepang. They again, they helped, but there's just no way. He's he's not only fast over a single lap. He's awesome in sprint simulations already. I mean, I'm just toast. I don't know why I said what I said. I need to. I need to go into hiding. Um, Val, I've never ever asked for consistency of opinions on this podcast, and I'm not going to start now. That's that's not what we're here for. <laughs> Facts and situations change. The important thing is to have the opinions. That said, though, yeah, okay, he looks amazing. It's really exciting having him here. Last year, we, we talk about him as the next Marquez. Marquez walked straight onto a Repsol Honda when Repsol Hondas were very good. He is on a Tech 3 Gas Gas. That is an improving bike, but HGCatty's on the grid, etc., etc. We've made our bets about winning or not winning, but now, now we've seen the test. What is a realistic expectation for what Acosta can do this season? What what would be a disappointment if he didn't achieve it? Now, maybe is the way to to look at it. Val, you can go first with this one as you've got a previous prediction. You now want to roll back on? 
No, to be fair, I still don't, don't think he wins the race, but I'm just, I'm a lot less comfortable about that now than I was before. I think that, honestly, like the overall result in terms of the, like the mass of the grid doesn't matter. It's all about where he runs compared to Brad Bender, all about where he qualifies compared to Brad Bender, where he races compared to Brad Bender. If he's already bothering Bender very early, then I think KTM and everybody else knows what they need to know about Pedro Acosta. And let's let's roll this back to the to the mention we just had about your point that KTM isn't interested in reinforcing its lineup from the outside. If Pedro Acosta is this, if this is if this is a realistic indicator of what Pedro Acosta is, KTM never has to worry about its works lineup again. It does not need Mark Marquez. It does not need uh, it does not need to think. It just extends him and it promotes him to the factory team and there he sits with Brad Bender for the next two years and everything is fine. Um, and I think looking back at that comment from Pitt Biver when I asked him about it and that was, you know, that was the answer they were giving and it surprised me then. I, guess this, I think this is what they know. <laughs> I think this is the guy they are thinking about. Um, yeah, I think, uh, but yeah, to answer your actual question and not just go into a random polemic, I think it's just all about how he compares to Brad Binder, and if he's kind of close for the most part of the season, that's already awesome. Simon, what is your Acosta prediction now? Slash, what would you what would you be disappointed if he didn't achieve now? I, I'm going to be disappointed if he doesn't win a race this year. That then that, that's not hyperbole. That is genuine. Like that's the level we're looking at with this kid. I I think we thought we had the next Mark Marquez, and I I. I'm actually more convinced than that than I have been for quite some time. So from the next Marquez to someone who's never been predicted as the next Marquez, um, but as you know, we've given him a lot of love for good reasons over the last few years on this podcast. Vel, remind the listeners of who your standout of the test was and make your case. I mean, it's Acosta, but... Yes. Your other standout is Acosta, um, yeah. You're, you're so not yeah, Acosta standout. I, I, am, I am super impressed with Alicia Spargo, and I'm a lot more impressed with Alicia Spargo than I'm with the, with the Aprilia, which only which seems to have brought a lot and is continuing its work as like MotoGP's great innovator on a bunch of areas, most notably aero. In this test, most notably the, the, like the rear unit modifications they've brought that are very striking to look at without being the boxes and the wings and stuff. But it's, it's working for Aleish and it does not, like the new bike, it's, I don't know if it's aero specifically, it might be also other details, but it's the new bike is working for Aleish and it does not seem to be working for the other guys right now. But the extent to which it's working for Aleish, for me, is genuinely a little bit mind-boggling. The guy is not getting younger. He has two really difficult teammates on 2024 spec, Aprilia's. Maverick Vinales should top every test, and he was not close at all to topping this one. But Aleish Spargo was the only rider to disrupt the Ducati hegemony ahead. If not for Aleish Spargo's lap, it would be a Ducati 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Alicia Spargo was four tenths off Banyaya at a track where Aprilia being four tenths off Ducati is absolutely fine and in fact probably even is quite good. Ducati's ahead and Ducati's going to remain more versatile and it has more of a fleet, but it's just the time is not catching up to Alicia. That's it, it, it's breaking my brain. It's not happening. The, he's still, he's refusing to give up his position as the lead Aprilia guy. They've brought this new, very different aero that, you know, um, gives him more stability, but also creates more weight in the bike. So it's less nimble, it's less agile, but he can push more corner speed out of it. And, and he's mega on it right away. 
He's just, he's just, he's had a really good test. He continues to defy his early career projections. He continues to refuse to stop being the captain of Aprilia. I think that's awesome. I'm just like, hats off to you, buddy. Rock on. Uh, don't even think about retiring yet. You've still got it <laughs> very much. The other person who you both kind of wondered about giving a shout to, and there's been plenty of chat about this week, is pod favorite Fabio De Giantonio. Now, I can't get my head around him being a VR46 rider at all. That is just, Every time I say it, I wait for one of you to correct me and say, no, 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 he, d- he didn't actually do that. He's at, he's at Avintia or something. It just doesn't, VR46 and, and Digi, it just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work for me still. He's had a, a deceptively good week by the look of things. Yeah. Um, uh, just a hat tip to uh, our counterpart from Crash, Peter McLaren, and also to MotoGP.com, who both tallied up all the sprint race uh, simulations. Obviously, there's a huge difference on the age of tires and use. There's a huge difference in the time of track. But did you have the fastest sprint race simulation? <laughs> he's new to VR46, and he's basically picking up where he left off with Grishini. Um, Looks great. Looks like he's he's here to stay. And obviously, it helps that he's not, you know, he's on a on a bike that's already in waiting for him. That's a hand-me-down. He doesn't have to do any of the development, any of the stuff like that. But again, his career, his MotoGP career looked over 12 months ago or eight months ago, seven months ago. Over. Done. Impossible to continue. Now, if you told me he wins Qatar, I can I can believe it. Genuinely. So, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah, I, I, I don't see anything to make me disagree with that. I think that... Um he, he's kind of hit that Anaya Bastianini Marco Bozzecchi sweet spot of year old bike fairly comfortable um, really really excellent crew chief uh, we know that he's he's you know lost a really excellent crew chief from Frankie Garcetti but he's went to VR46 he's inherited David Munoz who was Valentino Rossi's last crew chief a guy that really knows what he's doing and they've just picked up where they left off and it looks fairly complete I don't think it's going to last beyond the initial few races of the season. You know what I mean? He's going to be fast or you're going to be wrong. He's not going to be struggling to get into Q2, but I think um, he's got a really strong opportunity in these first few races and especially at Qatar to add more, frankly, rather unbelievable wins to his career. There are a few other big themes of this test that we're not going to get into this week because Simon does need to jump on the plane very shortly. Um, but to kind of put them on the to-do list for next week's podcast, the news broke just as the day, final day of testing was starting that Davide Brivio was coming back to MotoGP. We, we knew that was coming, but with Trackhouse, which seemed to have a different team boss last week, was quite the curveball. Simon, do you want to give us a very quick reaction to that? Um, I have kind of mixed feelings about it. Obviously, any team is going to jump at having Davide Brivio in their squad, 100%. He, the guy is, you know what I mean, he is Mr. MotoGP team boss. Um incredibly talented knows how to build a fantastic team did great work at Yamaha did wonders at Suzuki was a huge loss to the paddock when he went to F1 delighted he's back super super strong but I just for a team that wanted to do things a bit differently for a team that wanted to revolutionize and disrupt in MotoGP to then hire a guy who is basically one of Aprilia boss Massimo Rivola's best mates uh, to come in and run their satellite squad with Wilco Zielenberg, who he worked with for many years at Yamaha back in the day. It, it feels it feels a little bit like they've sold out Ooh. and are doing something to chase really quick results um, rather than really, really sort of doubling down on what I thought Trackhouse was going to be when they come into this championship. Maybe that's harsh, 
but that's just that's my initial take on it um i know some of the personalities involved now they're quite old school and i'm just worried that whenever Trackhouse are saying we need to do x and y in terms of content generation there's going to be voices inside the team saying if we do that our writers will be disrupted we're not doing it and it, it's going to come to a head within the team and i i think the the performance on track side will win over the content creation interesting commercial side of the team but time will tell hmm, interesting i guess the team is there to win ultimately yeah they are but that's not what track House have said they're coming in to do this year hmm. let's return to that this w- next week there's a lot more to come on this the other one I want to get into next week is Aero. I was kind of like, oh, we can, I can live with this Aero, at least it's experimental and interesting. And then they stuck a F1 style Aero rake on the back of Miguel Oliveira's bike this week, and I lost all interest in the concept. So we, will argue, we won't even argue about Aero. Next week, we will all agree that Aero is bad, and we talk about what to do about it. We also need to express a bit of concern about Augusto Fernandez because the flip side of Acosta looking so good is that last year's um, very quietly impressive rookie, it looks like he's really on the ropes before this year has even begun. But we'll get into all of that next week and look ahead to the second just two-day-long Qatar test. Uh, thank you for your company. Thank you, Simon, for squeezing this one in at the airport. Apologies to the person who tried to pick a fight with Simon over recording a podcast in the airport lounge. Um, producer Johnny, it, we, we will edit that bit out, but shame. It was Leave quite... it in. <laughs> if, we, if the audio picked up both sides of the argument, uh, maybe. But no, we'll keep that for an outtakes episode in the future. Um but yeah thank you for your dedication Simon apologies to other people in this airport lounge we'll be back in your ears next week to look ahead to the final test and talk about everything we ran out of time to talk about in this episode of the Race MotoGP podcast The Athletic